I want to tell you a little bit about my friend Dean. He lives in Kansas City. He's got a wonderful wife named Jeannie. He's got eight kids, seven grandkids. Uh, six of his kids are married. One of them is going to be married soon. Uh, you know, he's progressing. You know what that means? That means he's getting older. You'll, you'll notice he has a little bit more gray hair than me. I think he's like five, ten years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we we met through through the battle for Canada, leading up to the uh, North Battleford uh, ten day uh, event some years ago. We met. We were meeting at a hotel in uh, in Saskatoon a couple months before the event, and man, my I just loved the words that came out of his mouth. I just loved the apostolic administration of his gift i love the teaching anointing the clarity the word he's a wordsmith he uh he's uh, i hate to you know i'd hate to be translating him in another country like like that would be tough harder than translating me but uh uh you know and we've uh, we just had the chance to run together for the last uh five six seven years or something and outside of the battles for canada we've been doing some things in the u.s together and uh, we're looking I, I feel god has knit our paths together and i'm so glad I, I wanted him to come to the church because i've had the chance to hear him in different venues in different places as we as we've ministered together and i keep thinking you know, you know, this is how it is. When you love your family, and I love the church, I think, I want my church to hear this. I want my people to get a, get a piece of this. This is, this is scrumptious. This is absolutely marvelous. And, uh, and so uh, I want to present to you Dean Briggs, who's not only my friend, he's an ambassador of the kingdom of God. He's an anointed man with a message for this day and this hour. Come on, Dean, bless you. Well, let me begin by saying I'm sorry, <laughs> because apparently it was the tulips were blooming and everyone was wearing short sleeves yesterday, and I just brought, it's normally, you know, Canada brings it to America, but maybe I'm guilty of bringing it here, I don't know, but I do... Uh, I do have a new appreciation for the term frozen chosen <laughs> right now. It takes your breath away out there. It's. <laughs> so you may not know it, but we're all here for the long term. None of us are leaving for the next four days. <laughs> I was going to preach and preach and preach until you all are sick. <laughs> I, um, I'm so impressed by what the Lord is doing in the earth, and I, I mean that in the sense of I have no clue what he's doing, and my jaw is on the floor, and I'm like, wow, God, it's all so big. Everything is big now. All the nations in turmoil, political processes, institutions in crisis, economies in crisis, the church in crisis, 
And when he said that he was going to shake everything that could be shaken, I'm really impressed at how much he meant that. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. You, you, you meant that. But I feel like rather than kind of a visionary exploration of some of those things, which may be good, I, I feel that these next two or three days really are more kind of family. And I remember, I, neither Mark or I remember the first time I was here, but I remember being in this room, looking out, and, and getting a sense in the spirit of a certain culture that's been cultivated here, and glimpsing uh, at the beginning of Mark and I's friendship, the, the anointing he carries and, and the, the, the way that that has worked itself out in a, in a community of depth in the word and depth of worship. And I think I said at the time, a, a, a spirit of sonship that rests on the house. And um, so it's fitting for a conversation about generations. Now, I don't know that, like, I'm, 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 I'm stirred by that word. I think I'm going to go probably in a little different direction than um, a call for the youth of Canada. But I think what I, what's on my heart is going to pastorally work its way out as an encouragement to this church and to the area to really invest in that generation. I, what's in my heart, what I want to, to, to talk about is the generation of Jacob. And I know that, uh, I know Mark well enough and I've heard him share on this a number of times I know that Psalm 24 is not a new passage to you guys, and that phrase, the generation of Jacob, is not a new thought. And so in a sense, um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir, maybe. But I think if we can wrap our head and heart around it, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to these days because it's not very often that I get to dial back. Most conferences and settings, you have one or two shots, right? And then you move on and it's like, ah, guys like Mark and I, we, <laughs> we got 10 messages in us for every message, right? Yeah. And so it's, so the, the thought of, having three or four or five and interaction with Mark and the days that we have, I feel like I'm just gonna, just gonna dial back a bit, be a bit more conversational, and um, really try to get in the heart of this amazing story that God has told through Scripture in the generations of Abraham, Isaac, in particular, we're going to focus on Jacob. But I think tonight what I want to do is kind of unpack and summarize what the next two or three days will be about, and then we'll dig in to different episodes in Jacob's life and unpack those in more detail. But for tonight, I'm going to 
kind of give the big picture of what I want to share over the next two or three days. All right? I want to start in Psalm 24. I, you've probably heard it from others. I've been feeling for a couple of years. I think uh, 2023 was Psalm 23. I think the Lord was, if we were allowing it, it was a, um, Psalm 23 is timeless, right? That's good every day, every year. So obviously take this with a, a, a measure of that in mind. But I think 2023 was Psalm 23. And if you look at Psalm 23, it's really about how to live an anointed life. That's where it ends. My cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy follow me. And every step in it, it, it every word matters. And I've done teachings on this. I'm about to release some teachings on this where you just look word by word uh, and verse by verse. Psalm 23 is how to live an anointed life. And part of that is how to thrive in the midst of your enemies. And I think Psalm 23 was... We're, we're, we're seeing activity at greater levels that um, are disturbing enough we should be sobered by them, but it's really about learning to thrive in the midst of that, not becoming afraid. Right. And I believe for the same reasons that 2023 was Psalm 23, I think 2024 is Psalm 24. I think some of the shaking and the turmoil and the things we're seeing, the, the, the uh, scripture describes the return of Christ with the Greek word parousia, the parousia, the coming of Christ. And that word parousia is um, the energy the, the, the ripple effect, the shock wave, imagine if the sun started to draw nearer to the earth. If the sun or the moon, you would begin to feel if it was the moon and it got bigger and bigger, you would start to see massive changes on the earth before the moon ever hit the earth. The tides and cycles and everything, and you would say, "Why?" Because there's nothing to see, but there is an invisible gravitational bond that is disrupting things. If it was the sun, it would be that that corona of heat and power, and the temperature rises. And so, before it ever gets here, you feel its nearness coming. And scripture describes the coming of Christ and the nearness and the parousia in those kind of ways where everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Where birth pangs uh, that increase in uh, frequency and intensity. You know the baby's coming because it's no longer five minutes apart. Now it's two minutes apart. Now it's a minute apart. There's a there's a progression of intensity that God has worked into all of creation so that we have an ample witness to understand this is what it's going to look like. And I think to look around, we can see that the King of Glory is coming. 
that's Psalm 24, right? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up your heads, you ancient doors. The king of glory is entering in. I think those institutions and economies and politics and, and uh, uh, wars and rumors of wars and scandals in the church, there is a, there's a breaking in where we, we feel like we have successfully barricaded culture against God. And it, even in the church, we've got our rhythm and routine. And he, he's like, yeah, but I'm not there. And I'm coming. So I think Psalm 24 is especially relevant for us all year and I would encourage you to give your, your time and attention to it but that last part about breaking through the gates and the everlasting doors and who is this king of glory the Lord strong and mighty and the Lord mighty in battle I want to back up from there and if you just read along with me if you have your Bibles we're going to read the first six verses the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell therein. Hey, somehow I got onto King James. I saw therein and I knew I wasn't in my English standard. What well, just happened there? Let me switch. The earth is the Lord and the, oh, it's in English standard as well. <laughs> the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let me read that again. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Depending on the translation, the, the point is there is a generation that scripture equates to Jacob's generation, to Jacob himself, as those who seek God's face in an extraordinary way and they have as part of their testimony and their witness these qualities. But I think this is one of those passages that benefits more from reading backwards than forward. Because if you read this with an old covenant heart, you are going to enter into a striving that is different than Jacob's striving. I want to look at Jacob's striving. Jacob strove with God. But if, I'm, if I want to, have, to walk in uh, as part of the generation of Jacob, and then I say, okay, so who can ascend that hill? And I start to go down the list. Who shall stand in that holy place? A clean hands, pure heart. There are certain commitments and decisions of the heart. And 
actions that result that absolutely are part of this equation, and I'm not denying that at all. But it is very easy to believe that if I just do it right, then God will move. Then God will bless. And I turn life in the spirit to a formula in the flesh. And I strive not out of a place of confidence, rest, belief, or hope, but out of fear, condemnation, and effort. And it's very easy to read Psalm 24, and if this is a prophetic passage for this year, I'm really concerned that there's a lot of people that are going to be like, i got to knuckle down and get clean hands and a pure heart like never before. And again, this is describing a real, uh, uh, the real dynamic of a generation that is coming. But if we read it from the back, for, uh, from the end to the beginning, we see this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Okay, who is this? Those will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, the seeking is instrumental to the receiving. And the seeking and the receiving is where the possession comes from, not from how clean your hands are. So if you receive, we're going to go look at Jacob's life and you're going to see this played out in his life. To be the generation like Jacob is to receive a blessing and to receive righteousness. Now 90% of the church, made up number, probably true. 90% of the church does not have a deep abiding understanding of how to receive righteousness. We have an old covenant model for performing for righteousness rather than a new covenant model of receiving the righteousness which Christ alone possesses. And so if there really is a generation coming that's going to seek his face, that seeking is how we receive and it's how we possess and so the blessing and the righteousness that is part of this now informs how we have clean hands and a pure heart. And we don't lift up our soul to what is false. And that informs the, the, the confidence by which we ascend the hill of the Lord. So you don't start with that as the target. You do, clearly. That's, that, that's the narrative. But... If you don't read it rightly, you will start with that as the target and you will strive to achieve something that you have to receive. Let me give you another example. Uh, go to Isaiah 54 real quick. This is uh, off the beaten path, but it'll make the point. Isaiah 54, we love to quote verse 17. 
No weapon that is formed against me will prosper. All those that rise up against me will fall. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication comes from me. No, you know, and so you get in a moment and your statement of faith, you're feeling under pressure, you're, you know, if there's attack or enemies or confusion or whatever, and you pull that verse out, man. Like, <laughs> no weapon formed against me will prosper. I, I like that verse and that declaration of faith. The problem is, this is another one of those passages if you start there, you don't know how to actually be there. You got to back up. And so you go up a few verses, and it says in verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established and shall be far from oppression. Oh, okay. Well, now that starts to give me a context for why no weapon will work. Because if I'm established in righteousness and no oppression can touch me, then actually I don't want to just load my six-shooter with that, that end verse and bam, 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 proclamations of faith when I don't have righteousness established in my life. Well, how is righteousness established in your life? You got to keep backing up. To verse 10, even verse 9, but I'll just read verse 10. The mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54 is a, is a, a, a messianic passage and it's a promise in the old covenant of the new covenant that's coming. And the very idea that we live in the new covenant should, it, this is one of those, it, when it finally sinks in, it's a, well, of course, duh. But if we aren't thoroughly people of the new covenant, then that comes with the assumption that the old was really good enough. Why the new? If the old was good enough to establish the covenant of peace, to establish you in righteousness, so that no covenant formed against you would pro no no weapon formed against you would prosper, then he wouldn't have had to promise out of the old covenant, I'm going to do something new that will actually bring this to pass. And so in the church we have a discipleship model that is primarily attempting to make new creations out of the old covenant. And we're trying to disciple people more by the discipline of Moses than life in the spirit of Christ. And so you have people that are storm-tossed, unstable, double-minded, and they have to pull that verse out as a statement of faith because it's not a possession of righteousness in their life. Because they don't understand that a covenant of peace has been established with them. That God says in verses 9 and 10, I'm rewriting the rules with the new covenant. It's not going to be up and down, do I like you or do I not like you? 
Are you acting in obedience, therefore I can bless you? Or are you believing in who I am and what I supply for you? And that counts as righteousness. Now that's very bothersome to people that are works oriented and to some degree we're all works oriented. Because it takes a while for us to get this trained out of our thinking. And it's much easier to fall back to works than to the mystery of life in the spirit. And so I fail and I fall and I think God's angry and I gotta get my act together. And we live under the cloud of suspicion that he's just barely holding back from unloading on us at all times. Now that is fertile ground for all kinds of oppression and attack from the enemy. And I can't just pull out that verse and proclaim it in faith when it's not actually a, a, a different mindset is possessed and lived out in my life. Are you hearing what I'm saying there? Well, I hope so because I'm moving on. So the generation of Jacob that seek his face are those that receive the blessing and receive righteousness. So now let's, uh, where do I need to go here? Oh yeah, let's go to Hebrews. Actually, you know what? I just want to read this one thing. What I'm going to do, the bookends I want to give, I'm focusing on Jacob but I want to talk a little bit about Abraham, a little bit about Isaac, mostly about Jacob, a little bit about Joseph, and I want to end with Benjamin. And that's kind of the bookends for our time together. There's multiple generations in there. The generations are unique. The generations overlap. The generations contribute and interdepend on one another. And Jacob's is the anchor in the middle that is, uh, we're meant to understand we are of this family line. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is who restarted history after the Tower of Babel, chose one man who responded in faith, and God counted it to him as righteousness that he believed. Okay, I need to come back to this idea of covenant for just a minute because some of where we're going to go, I, I teach a whole course on this. 54 sessions on the total superiority of the new covenant. I'm, 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 this more than anything else, people know me for ecclesia. I am, I am passionate about producing in the saints a thorough understanding of the new covenant so that we can be new creations who then have authority as the ecclesia. There's two types of covenant. There's seven 
Most scholars will say there's seven covenants in Scripture. Creation covenant, the uh, Edenic covenant, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, Davidic, all the way up to the new covenant. But out of the seven, there's two general categories. There is covenants of performance and covenants of grace. The Davidic covenant was a mix. Oh, the Noahic covenant, I forgot that in there. But covenants of performance, covenants of grace. And there's other ways to classify covenants. If you get into technical terms, there's the suzerain vassal kind of treaty, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about theologically, covenants of performance, covenants of grace. And we start in the garden with a covenant of performance. And we start there so that we all can learn a covenant of performance is guaranteed to fail. Now here's what I mean. One rule. Two people. Perfect environment. No sin. Can't do it. If a covenant of performance was ever going to work, Eden was the platform. Just one rule, and it wasn't even that complicated. Right? There's stuff to eat everywhere. Their appetites are actually perfect. One rule, two people, perfect environment, no sin, cannot do it. You get to Abraham and you see a different kind of covenant. God invites Abraham to respond to him. Abraham believes and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. And so what you have, Abraham sets up the the terms of life with God that come under the law and are co-opted by the law because Abraham's tribe refused to relate to God the way Abraham did. And so they came under accusation of God to the point of telling God that he had delivered them from Egypt so that he could kill them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to see they continue to believe and they continue to prosper in the blessing of that unconditional, unmerited favor that faith positioned them to just receive. That's the blessing. He received the blessing. But even after God demonstrates uh, 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 astonishing degrees of care and love in the deliverance of the children of Israel. You see story after story, and man, I am so far off course right now. Just so far off of what I, but <clears throat> coming out of, out of, can you imagine anything, talk about shaking 
and quaking and everything that can be shaken, being shaken, the most powerful empire on the earth is judged and destroyed simply because God had made a promise to his friend Abraham. If you look at the story, go back and reread it. He did not deliver them because of their own merit. In fact, the rabbis have a phrase for it, and it's the merit of the ancestors. In future cycles, Moses in intercession and others would appeal back and say, remember Abraham. Remember that man moved your heart in faith and you made a promise to him that you would bless him so much you would bless those that bless him and curse those that curse him. But for Abraham and his family, there was no curse. The covenant of grace with Abraham had no curse in it for the children of Abraham. That's a shocking thought. If you actually go through Abraham's life, Isaac's life, life, and Jacob's life, these guys were messed up. I would like to take a poll of all the married women in the room and ask them. <laughs> Talk to me about the sterling qualities of Abraham and Isaac who are trading you off as their sister because they don't want to get hurt by Pharaoh or Abimelech. They lied. They put their wives at risk. Reading between the lines, Sarah was basically traded into Pharaoh's harem. Hey, sweetie, we got to survive down here. And you're really pretty. And if he knows that you're my wife, he'll kill me, so go join the harem. What? Right. Now, this is awful. This is awful. And God judges Pharaoh. He doesn't even learn. He goes and does the same thing with Abimelech. Philistine chief. God shows up to Abimelech in a dream, says, you touch her and I'll kill you. Abimelech goes back to Abram's like, dude, I thought we were friends. Isaac, like father, like son. He goes... Don't know if it's the same Abimelech or another king named Abimelech, the son of. Same mistake. Abimelech is looking and he's like, Isaac, you aren't treating her like you would your sister. And Abimelech, it actually says, it, it, scripture is careful in that, in that episode with Isaac. Isaac commits the sins of his fathers that are, you know, just reprehensible by any standard and as soon as he's done the next verse it says in that same year he prospered a hundredfold in that same land in that same year why because God made a covenant with his friend by faith where he said I'm gonna I'm gonna fix you along the way. 
It's not about you conforming to a standard externally that you don't possess internally. You're going to mess up a hundred times over the course of your life, or if you're me, a hundred thousand times. But if you start with the idea, I got to have clean hands and a pure heart because I want to go up to the mountain of the Lord, and so I am going to knuckle down in my own righteousness, then you have missed the story of the blessing we're meant to receive and walk in. And we actually put ourselves at odds with God because when I'm failing, I'm condemned and I have no confidence to come to him. And when I'm succeeding, I'm proud and I've invited his resistance. And so now I have to fall back on cherry picked verses to get me through crises. Because I don't actually have a life with God that's bigger than any of that with confidence that I can never be righteous in and of myself. I must receive his. And the difference between the covenants is in a covenant of performance, righteousness, there's not different kinds of righteousness. There's different ways of securing righteousness. Righteousness is a quality that the the definition of righteousness is uh, uh, to be in right standing. That's righteousness in, in its essence. To be in right standing to what? To the terms of the covenant. So when they get to Mount Sinai, they go over the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant in the garden were, if you want to be righteous, don't eat from that tree. Couldn't do it. The terms at Sinai, see, we, we, we look at that as if they had no choice. But when you read it carefully, scholars see that Moses went up and down the mountain as many as seven times. He was the mediator, and he went up and God said, go tell him this, go tell him this, Go tell them this. Is this what you agree to? They're like, yeah, we got this. Everything you say, we will do. And Moses doesn't make it down from the mountain before they're breaking it. But prior to that, they had complained about thirst. God brought water from a rock. They had complained about hunger. He brought quail. They, uh, a man uh, was, uh, uh, he gathered extra manna for the Sabbath and, and uh, uh, God allowed it. Story after story after story in the deliverance from Egypt, they're immature, they're weak, they're complaining, they don't understand who this God is. They're on a journey still under Abraham's covenant. And God is blessing and watching over the flock of quail come, the water from the rock. There's provision for their mistakes out of his kindness and mercy because they're living under Abraham's blessing and he's promised to only bless. But then it slowly shifts because Abraham lived a life of faith 
And they, but, but faith, is a, faith is mysterious. We're actually most alive in the mystery of that kind of relationship to God. But it is fatiguing to the soul until you embrace it. And I would much rather just, God, just tell me. Just, what do you want? And the most frustrating thing as you mature as a Christian is when he goes, what do you want? Right? That's what Mark was talking about up here in worship. There's the bribe. I like that language, that bribe of hey, if you worship in a certain way, I'll respond in a certain way. But there's the other kind where it's like, I don't, I don't need that. I just want to do this. And so we try to codify, and it's why the law is so magnetic to our soul. Because I don't have to think about what pleases God. I just do those 10 things. It's why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was poison. God didn't say, if you eat it, I'm going to kill you. He said, if you eat it, you'll die. Why? Because as soon as you are consulting anything but him, as soon as you have any knowledge outside of what he supplies, you have removed yourself from your source of life. It's a toxin in the human system that leads to death. And so the full manifestation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil delivered in the, at Sinai, the people were weak and stumbling and God kept being merciful and patient and kind, but they didn't stay in the place of humble, complaining faith. Even the complaint, God didn't mind. But what happened was, you see, and you can go to put it together, Psalm 105 and 106 and 97 and different passages that kind of articulate those years. What happened was, the complaint, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We don't understand, became, God, you hate us, and you brought us out here to kill us. The complaint became bitterness, an accusation against God's character. And so he said, I have tried and tried to treat you like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let me treat them. But you won't respond to me with the faith that they responded to me. So we're going to do this differently. And he brought them to a mountain and he negotiated with them and he gave them, these are all the things that you are going to have to do. But here's the new rules. It's not that I will bless you regardless. If you obey, I will bless you. And if you disobey, you'll be under a curse. And for the first time, the Abrahamic family comes under a curse at Sinai. And what happens? As soon as they say yes and ratify it, they come down from the mountain, they're already in idolatry, the ground opens up and swallows thousands. A guy picks up sticks on the Sabbath, God, uh, Moses goes to God and says, what should we do with him? God says, kill him. They are bitter and complaining about water. 
and, and, uh, and they're poisoned. They complain about food, and the quail comes, and they get sick. There's plague after plague where thousands die. And scholars look at this, and they say God is out of his mind. The atheist and the, 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 the textual critic, they say, well, God's finding himself. <laughs> and he's this kind of, you know, variable, tempered, can't decide if he likes people or not. No, God didn't change. The terms of the covenant changed. They had been under one kind of covenant and they chose to be under a covenant of performance instead and that meant you either perform for your blessing or you fail for your curse. And so we go and read Deuteronomy 28 and we're like, oh, look at these blessings. This is awesome. And then you got to keep reading. Deuteronomy 29, where the curses are like 50% longer and 100% worse than the blessings. The curses are terrible. We love to quote the blessing. I'm going to be the head and not the tail. I'm going to lend and not borrow. And there we are cherry picking our verses while attempting to satisfy God out of the very law-based thinking that guarantees your failure and invites the curse. I have three minutes left. <laughs> and I don't think I'm at my intro. <laughs> well, there you go. <clears throat> Well, okay, so I'm not going to get to where I thought I was going to get to tonight. This will become tomorrow morning, but go to, uh, go to Isaiah 41. So in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see God establishing the family of faith. You have... Abraham as the man of covenant, you have Isaac as the sacrificial son, and you have Jacob as the contender. And this is really a progression in all our lives. It's a progression of history. It's a progression of the identity of the people of God. We come, we have to come into the covenant of faith. The son of sacrifice secures the generational transfer where we receive the promise. See, Isaac, Isaac and Ishmael are a duality. Sarah and Hagar are a duality. Jacob and Esau are a duality. Cain and Abel were a duality. They show these forks in the road that determine like branches on a spiritual lineage, which path are you gonna go down? See, the problem even today is, presumably everyone here on a cold night in Edmonton, you have come under the blood of Christ. You are living in the, uh, the full potential of the new covenant. 
But living in the full potential of the new covenant does not mean you understand how to possess the full potential of the new covenant. And so we can be in this room, blood-bought, saved, going to heaven, sons of the condemnation of the law. Based on what I choose to believe or think or how I respond to God. In other words, Israel, even after Sinai, the law did not replace Abraham's covenant. Galatians 4 says it was added to it. So Abraham is continuing in a perpetual covenant that Jesus restores and adds to. When you come to Christ, you He takes the burden of the law, the penalty of the law, the condemnation and the guilt of the law. He satisfies it and he brings you back into a covenant of grace that's even greater than Abraham's. And it's not that Moses' covenant ended. Abraham's was eternal, but we get to live in the choice. So I live daily deciding how I ascend that mountain. I live daily with the potential to strive for clean hands and a pure heart or to receive a blessing that transfers righteousness to my life. And the clean hands and a pure heart, way easier to receive and to live out of what I receive than to somehow overcome the lust, the jealousy, the... All of us are going to stay at the foot of the mountain if that's what it takes to ascend the mountain. So Abraham, this generational idea, Abraham, the man of faith who received a covenant of righteousness and grace, the son that typifies the father and the son. Paul makes the argument in Galatians and Romans. He explains that the only way God could have actually promised The only way that he could guarantee, it's actually Hebrews, the only way he could guarantee that Abraham would walk in everything he wanted to give him was if it was according to a promise that Abram believed. Because otherwise, if it is up to his ability to perform, then it's guaranteed to fail. So he set up a fix for Eden's fall by saying to that man, will you just follow me and trust that it's going to be good? And Abram said, yes. And God rolled out the red carpet. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of that man. The Messiah will come from that man. The, the progression of faith built on the blood of Jesus to a generation that contends for higher things.
can only secure those higher things if it is coming out of that kind of faith. That is good news. That is why the angels came and announced, Behold, I bring you glad tidings. Good news, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. Think about, under the law, we constantly strive to believe that God's will is good toward us. But it was actually under the law that the angel said, this has always been God's heart. And he's brought, the father has brought his sacrificial son to make sure we rewrite, we bring all of history into the possibility of a new deal with God. Righteousness that is not according to performance, but according to grace by faith. Here it is receive and that generation that gets that right and sets their face to seek God on those terms can ascend the mountain of the Lord amen let's stand it's powerful stuff you know uh when Paul's writing about this in Romans, he says, uh, he categorizes two types, two people in two, just two categories. The slaves and the children of the, the heirs of the household. The slaves and the, and the heirs. And there's a tension between the slaves and the heirs because the slaves are much better behaved The slaves live in fear because if they don't perform well, they're out. If you don't perform well for this house, if you don't benefit this house, you're down the road. You're sold to another household. The sons are viewed by the slaves as presumptuous, proud, entitled, arrogant, and they are all those things. But God knows how to deal with that in his sons. But they're that because they live under a favor that they don't deserve <laughs> and they're enjoying it. And in this room tonight, you could feel more like the slave than the heir. This weekend, God is bringing a line to make clear that you can jump over into the air column. That's what he's called us, to be sons, not servants, slaves, subject to fear, but adopted, comforted, welcomed, covered, children of promise, he says in Galatians. So Father, make us that. May we participate fully in the covenant and all its promises. 
not according to our goodness, but according to your amazing love. Father, give us the faith that appeals not to our performance, but appeals to your mercy, your love, and your willingness to forgive us, your tenderness that the sons know, but the slaves can never know. Amen? Amen. All right. See you tomorrow night.